tell everybody out there who doesn't know you or your music, mm -hmm. um, what style of music do you play? Everybody has to make a definition of, of what you do. And so what's your genre? So we came up with one that really is pretty descriptive. It's chicken fried pre-war Hokum Billy Jug Man music, which is just easy to remember. And we figured that's yeah, a good, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, everybody just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Hang, and, on, hang on while I write that <laughs> guys welcome back to another episode of two beers with ben i'm your host chris schramm and today i am sitting down with bill steber and he is an interesting character guys i think you're really going to enjoy <laughs> this interview um i hope you enjoy it as much as i enjoyed reading about this man um but uh, Bill, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, and then we'll talk about the uh, beers that you brought. Okay, and, yeah. Um, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've been introduced as a character before, and I'll try to, I'll try to live up to that. Um, yeah, I'm Bill Steber. I'm actually from, uh, I'm from Tennessee, about fourth or fifth generation Tennessee. I think I had family here before it was a state at least on my mom's side, uh, down from Hickman County, Williamson County area, from the poor part of Williamson County. Right. Um, yeah, and I've been a, a music fanatic ever since I have had memory. So almost everything I do um, revolves around music. There's a soundtrack in my head 24-7, whether I like it or not. Yeah, so every yeah. my whole life is, is eat, live, and breathe music. Right, right. I know the feeling. Um, if there's not a song playing in my head, I'm apparently asleep. Oh, I even have them at all. The, you know, if I'm working on a song, like learning a new song or a song that I don't want in my head, it goes all night long. I'll wake up at three in the morning and there's that song. It's just rolling in my head all night long. So, well, well, I think a part of that is the creative aspect of being a musician, a creator, a um, someone who. A creative, I right, guess right, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. And I guess maybe that is either a blessing or a curse. How well, it depends because most of the time the song it. that's rolling in my head is not always one that I want. Mm. You know, it's yeah, like yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like I'm plagued by the perpetual earworm. Right, so. <laughs> right. I, I have the same thing. I wake up in the middle of the night with a song in my head and I don't know the whole song. Right, right. So it's like... Maybe the first verse just repeats over. Oh yeah, and over yeah, 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 and over and over. It's like, <laughs> oh god, what do I got to do to get rid of this? But uh, yeah, let's, one, let's go ahead. One of the things you can do to get rid of it is is try a beer. Well, you know what? You uh, happen to pick up a interesting beer. Uh -huh. uh, you picked up Buddy. It is a collab beer uh -huh. uh, from Jackalope Brewing. And in collaboration with Hattie B's, a uh, fairly well-known restaurant here in the OI Nashville. Oh, yeah. And this happens to be a Golden Ale. It is 5.2% ABV. It's one pint can. It's uh, definitely got interesting can art. I will give it that. Yeah, I like the disembodied uh, heads on there. That's a, that's, a, that's a nice vibe there. You got the... Um, oh, I understand why, because you got the disembodied uh, chicken head for Hattie B's and the disembodied jackalope head. So, um, yeah. 
Okay, I did not see that until now. I definitely, uh, that's interesting. Huh, I bet there's a story behind that. Um, Probably so, yeah. I like the colors and everything. And being a golden ale, what I'm guessing is that it's probably going to be designed to cool the heat from the the, uh, shut the cluck up level of hot that they have at Hattie B's. Ah, I like it. I like it. Would have never put that together, but I definitely yeah, like it. Because you want, you know, that's why all the Mexican beers are that basically versions of the Pilsner there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because you want to take away the heat from the properly prepared Mexican food. All right, so let's, all right. let's check out the color of this thing. All right. All right. Digging that. Well, uh, my pour was a little more aggressive. Yeah, man, you got a nice little head on that one. Yeah, yeah. I don't get to enjoy that one as soon as (laughs) you get to enjoy yours, and that really sucks. I had a friend of mine that was, uh, he was sitting in a pub in Ireland one time, and they uh, ordered a Guinness. And uh, and the way the old guys over there, once they pour, pour off the pint, they'll sit there and they'll wait until all of the foam is settled so they can get the... You know, so they, the bartender will top it all the way off. And my friend, you know, he, he already went to take a sip of it with the head on it. And the guy was like, you must have a powerful thirst, you know. Right. Because he was like, any respectable Irishman or Scott is going to wait until that foam goes all the way down. Well, there is a buddy of mine at the tap room where I met you. Yeah. He does the exact same thing when they pour in his mug, uh-huh. they will sit it, they'll pour, and they'll let it sit, and they'll go and do other things, right. wait for the head to go away, and top it off right. before they hand it to him. Every single time in the night I met you, actually, yeah. Yeah. before the bartender did a shift change, she walked by, and everybody who had the uh, mug, she said, do you want me just to go ahead and top it off? And I was like, sure. Right, and right. she said, they got me trained. Oh, right, so right, right. I, I was like, okay. You know, you, you can get a certificate at the Guinness uh, factory in Dublin. Was, uh, right before COVID, we were over in Ireland when we took the tour there. And at the very end of it, you take a class um, in how to properly pour a pint of Guinness. And you get your certificate if you at the end of the, end of the day. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a whole technique of 45-degree angle to a certain point, and then you have to turn. I forget the exact thing. I did get my certification, but uh, uh, if you have to re-up every year, I'd probably lose it. Um, right. <laughs> but that was, a, that was a fascinating thing, and, and it's nothing like having a, a, a properly poured Guinness just mere feet away from where they make it, and it was, it was the finest one I'd ever had for sure. Oh, I'm sure it's fresh and just without question, you know, especially a stout beer. Yeah. As yeah. fresh as you can get it. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, and it hadn't sat in a can and just, you know, with me, any type of dark brown beer, stouts, yeah. porters, anything like that, or uh, anything that's barrel, uh, I have to sit. You know, I want to pour it and let it open up. Yeah, Almost yeah. treat a beer like that like wine or bourbon. Absolutely, you yeah. Know? And that, I mean, that's just me. I tend to get better flavor uh, when All I right. do that. But this beer right here has a foamy uh, wide head. Yeah. It has fast rising bubbles. It's 
gold in color, which is good, but it's it's pretty clear. What's funny? Mine's cloudier, and I wonder if that comes down if it's the lighting or if it's the pour technique. I don't know what what, but um, mine's just ever so slightly cloudier than yours. Well, mine may be a little more clear because I punished it when I put it <laughs> in that glass. So, well, that, that could be part of it, but either way, that is a really pretty beer that is that's that's it lives up to the name that is the most golden of golden ales i think i have ever seen so well, you want to you want to try it yeah all let's right. get a sniff cheers all right okay a little fruity on the top to me a little flowery a little bit a little, a little it's a little sweeter yeah and then it gets a little sweeter um, no bitterness at all. Oh, no. there's a little bit right there. Just on the back end. I'm just getting a little kind of ESB kind of notes there. Like, um, hmm. Just, just ever so slightly. Yeah, but it's, it's not enough to overpower the malts and the other right. flavors. It's just enough to kind of clean it up a little bit and... Let you know you're drinking a beer, right? Um, so, I like it's actually, it has a, a, it's a little more buttery than I was expecting. Because when you think of you know golden ale, I guess as opposed to just a pilsner. Now I'm not an expert on all the, the various uh, brewing techniques and what goes into it, but um, yeah, it's it's got a little more body than I thought it was going to have. Well, <clears throat> that is definitely a good thing. Um, you know, it's funny that on the second sip, um, it wasn't quite as, as flowery and sweet. It's got a little more interesting bitter notes for me on the second on the second taste. It does seem like the bitterness comes in a little bit sooner. Yeah, yeah. And maybe stays just touch longer. Right, yeah. And I think maybe that could have something to do with the fact that, one, your palate's kind of already set yep. on what to expect. Right. But the beer is getting a little more air to it. Yep. And that's that's one thing I like about craft beer. If you take a beer and you kind of have a conversation like what we're doing right. and kind of let it open up, it'll show you a little bit more complexity. A yep. good craft beer will right. show you a little right. more complexity and maybe even a couple of different tastes in there. And that, to me... That makes a good beer better. Absolutely. I, I like something that's interesting rather than just completely predictable. Yeah. You or, know. Yeah, and just, you know, th this is a beer you can enjoy and you can talk about as opposed to a beer you just sit there and slam. Right. Yeah, yeah. Crunch the can and go grab another <laughs> one, you know. Uh, <coughs> Natty Light. <coughs> right, right. <laughs> Not domestic beers, no. All right. All well, right. That, that's already uh, my shoulders are already lowering a little bit, getting a little more relaxed. I'm right. One more sip here. Right. I think we'll be ready to roll. All right. Well, uh, what do you what do you got going right now? What are you into? What's uh, what's going on? Oh my gosh. Well, um, last year was insanely busy, um, and I was looking forward to a little more downtime this year. But of course, it's already kind of cranking up. Um, we've got in the, the main band that I'm in is a band called the Jake Leg Stompers. And this next, this year will be our 20th year oh, of, wow. uh, together. Okay. And 
Yeah, and um, you know, we were doing I don't know maybe fifty gigs um, a year for the pandemic before the pandemic, and um, and really only one of us was even uh, just only a musician. The rest of us have other things, so that was pretty busy. And then of course things fell off after that, but um, it's starting to pick back up again. Our um, our drummer Horatio Algernon Whiplash, otherwise known as Noisy, aka Sam Rorix. Um, he, he has retired from his sales job. So he is booking us every place he can get us, you know, in all kinds of variations. We've got the, the main Jake Lake Stompers and then Lisa Law, Lisa, uh, she's, um, that's, she, she's actually Leela Mae Smith in the band, her nom de jug. She's got a several bands. So there's like within that band. There's about three or four variations. The Lisa Law Trio. She's got Lisa Law and the Suspects. Um, you know, me, me and uh, the, the bass player and the Stompers have a band called the Hoodoo Men. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and we put out a record working on a second one. So that's the thing about, you know, working as a musician, and especially in the Nashville area. Um, you got to have a bunch of dis- different side projects and hustles and, you know, in other words, to, to match the, uh, the budget. Right. If there's a thousand bucks, then yeah, we can bring the whole band and do our own sound. Uh, this is a $150 gig. Well, maybe a couple of us or three of us at the most yeah. can do it, you know? Yeah. So, but we've got repertoire and, and, and people for each of those, you know, whatever fits the appropriate, you know, uh, venue. Like when you saw us, that was half of us. And that was Lisa's gig, and we were uh, oh, okay. doing a three-piece. Okay, okay. Yeah. I didn't – well, I was just – I was so um, – what's the word I'm looking for? The – I was not expecting that style of music. Right. And um, I came over there, and I sat there, and I was like, okay, I, I see what they're doing. I see the genre. I appreciate it, and, you know, it – it's a genre that I've gotten into um, gotten, uh, several years ago. I kind of took a, a, a deep dive into it. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. And y'all were just killing it. Oh, I mean, I was just, you know, the, the volume... The volume was good. Good, yeah. And, yeah, we don't, we're not about, you know... The Marshall stacks and trying to blow people away, you know, we we want to have a you know a comfortable volume to fit the the space, you know, yeah, people to be able to have a conversation, hopefully not too loud right in front of the band, but you know we understand you're in a public place, and right? Well, not everybody's coming out just to hear you, so you know. <laughs> well, I did one thing I appreciated about you guys is the volume wasn't overly. It wasn't too high, yeah. but also I could hear the individual instruments oh, right. yeah. and the vocals, and you could kind of sit there and almost almost block out certain things. But, you know, I've been to see many shows where, you know, you'll have a bass player that's turned up too high because right. the vocalist just can't, you know, they, right. they can go in a studio and make it happen, but right. live right. on stage, they're not quite there yet. Right. So they got to turn something up to kind of drown him or her out right. just a touch. <laughs> or, you know, the guitar, maybe he's not he's not quite there yet, so right. they'll turn something up. Or they'll turn the guitar up because maybe the bass player can't, right, can't stay right. in time. But well, you guys seem to kind of 
everything flowed and didn't well, need. To we've be been at it a while. We know kind of each other, how to, you know, listen for each other too, you know, because that's, uh, like I said, the band's been around 20 years and, and Sam, the drummer who was running the sound, he, he's pretty much an OG member of the band. Now, Lisa's only been with us half the time. She's only been with us about 10 years. So she's one of the newcomers in the, in the group. Right. But we're so lucky to have her. Um, yeah, uh, she's she's a world class singer. We're just, you know, I just always joke with her. I'm thank God she doesn't know how good she is, or she'd never play with us. You know, she's yeah, she truly is a world class singer. Wow, um, tell everybody out there who doesn't know you or your music, mm -hmm. um, what style of music do you play, um, and how did you come about that? Um, that style of music and you know I, I know you're in different bands right. but the albums I've listened to the songs I've listened to they do they do kind of to me it seems like everything can be thrown in the same basket and that's just me being on the outside right, right. you know I'm not I'm in the middle of it like you are but to right. me I can listen to your different bands and I can say, you know what? All that fits together. Yeah. No, it's so. true. It, it, it is true. So the band, um, Jake Leg Stompers, uh, we started, like I said, 20 years ago. And and when, you know, everybody has to make a definition of, of what you do. And so what's your genre? So we came up with one that really is pretty descriptive. It's chicken fried pre-war Hokumbilly Jug Band music, which is just easy to remember. And we figured that's yeah, a good, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, every, it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Hang, and, on, hang on while I write that <laughs> Actually, what it basically means is that um, we just play just any music we want to, generally with a cutoff around 1945. So almost everything we do is from the mid-20s through the mid-30s, which is, to me, the sweet spot for the greatest music that was ever recorded um, in America. And the reason is because, um, you know, the first professional recordings came out in the 1890s on cylinder, and that was the dominant form for about 10 years. Uh, and then eventually there was the, uh, the platters started coming in, uh, uh, the Edison discs and 78s. Uh, but in those first really more than 20 years, um, the, the record industry was was kind of the lowest common denominator music, barbershop quartets, a lot of Irish tenors, um, Caruso, light opera, a lot of popular music, um, pretty pretty straight stuff. Uh, the real the real interesting stuff didn't get recorded until well up into the 1910s, you know, the first jazz record um, around 1917, the first real blues record around 1920. And these were just some of the first forays into into really branching out for the industry. And so by 1925, um, almost all the you know, the famous singers of the day were already affiliated with the big companies, Victor and Columbia and um and so that some of the smaller labels that were trying to break in, they had to find their own market. So they were like, what's an untapped market? So they started, like uh, rec uh, labels like Paramount, Jeanette, they started uh, looking at what they called uh, race records and hillbilly records. Those were the two, you know, genres that were roughly affiliated with, you know, working class white culture, working class black culture. 
and that's when the good stuff started getting recorded. Um, and they found that, oh my gosh, there's a market for that. So starting in, in the mid-1920s, that's when the real, what we think about as the old school blues first got recorded. The, all the hillbilly bands that were the old time music that was the precursors to country and bluegrass and all of that stuff. So in other words, um, not professional, but, but important musicians that were... Um, you know, exemplars of their community finally started getting recorded. And because they had never had gotten recorded before, all every little community had their own style, their own bands, like the fiddle players in Mississippi were very different than the ones from North Georgia. Uh, they had a little more looser, snakier style. And and so that first 10 years, the, the record companies didn't know what the hell they were doing. They would just record anything and everything, like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sold. But by doing so, they actually were preserving all these various styles and genres and community sounds from all around the country and all around the South until they figured out what sold. And then starting in the 30s, it, uh, especially after uh, the Depression, it started getting really, really, you know, kind of commodified. And, you know, it all started sounding more the same, more like what we have now, you know, like Bro Country in Nashville, you know, yeah, and all that kind of uh, thing. But that golden period from the mid-20s through the early 30s, and that's what we focus on because there's so much just phenomenal music that most a lot of people don't know. I had somebody come up after a gig one time and, and gave us a, a great compliment. They said, like, look, I love everything y'all did. I don't think I knew a single song that y'all played, but I feel like I knew all of it. And that's because everything that you're familiar with, this is the roots of it. You know, this is the, the building blocks to everything that came afterwards. So that's kind of what we focus on. And, and also the, the other thing is that we want to do something that's, that's really fun. So we kind of focus on the jug band music, a little ragtime, some novelty tunes, some, you know, some hardcore blues, um, some of the stuff that has, I guess this was the music that your, your great grandparents told your grandparents not to listen to. This was, right. The, right. you know, the rude music, the, <laughs> the, the punk music, the, right. you know, the rock and roll of the period, you know, the, you know, the, the music for uh, meat barrel types as uh, some of these blue singers were called you know right right well what I, <clears throat> what i've heard it to me it's kind of and this is just me looking from the outside in i do kind of see it as roots blues yeah to me yeah, yeah. and since i'm a fan of blues music right. that it does kind of have that it has that throwback pure sound yeah like some of the vinyl that you know i've found over the years in various places in various shapes right you know but you you put it on and you listen to the recording and it's like you know what this is pure yeah. you you hear the little mistakes in the background that's so important because you know this isn't edited Right. down so much they couldn't it, edit right it was right. cut directly to the metal lathe right you and know that's what you got is what you got there ain't no overdubs and that's what i like about that style of music you you hear in the back or you hear it sounds like you hear the flaws yes and the humanity right you know what made marilyn monroe the, one of the most beautiful women in the world. Of course, she was gorgeous and had a great body and hair and all that. But, you know, the beauty mark. 
Right. That flaw, that one flaw that keeps it from becoming just a completely synthetic thing that makes it relatable. Right. Um, I love that kind of stuff. I love hearing the the human element in, in music, and especially in that old music, because half of those guys, probably because they were, they just sounded drunk. Like if you listen to old Skillet Liquors records, a great hillbilly band from North Georgia, my God, they were having a great time, and they were probably high as kites. Right. The whole time they were recording. And there's just such a joyful abandon. And that was one of our mission statements because of like, well, look, we're living in Nashville area. This is per capita probably the greatest musicians in the entire world. I mean, like you walk into Kroger, and it's like, oh, well, hey, there's Sam Bush right there. He's only the top three best mandolin players in the entire world. You know, oh, Chris Thiel, you know, all these guys. Um, Stuart Duncan on Phil. I mean, these are like the world-class people. And, and for most folks, you're not going to compete against that. Um, it, there's just such amazing musicianship in this town. But sometimes, you know, especially on the, on the Music Row side, it's a little tight. You know, it's not always fun. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's, it's so precise, and especially with the production standards today. And I thought, you know, the one thing they don't have enough of is a bunch of drunk hillbillies playing old music. Well, that's... <clears throat> I know... I'm born and raised in Nashville. I've been, you know, around music my entire life all forms of music and it, it some of the radio stations i listen to uh, the main radio station i listen to they do a lot of um they put on a lot of shows promote a lot of shows and they'll go and record the entire show from start to finish and you know there's and as you know, musicians will get up there, uh, the singer will tell a joke, or they'll introduce somebody while they're swapping instruments, whatever. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of musicians will say, you know, we're here in Nashville and we gotta, we got to really step up because right, yeah. we're not playing to uh, just any audience. Right. We're playing to an audience of professionals. Right. And we have to entertain and impress this audience more than, you know, if we're in some little podunk podunk town in, you know, Montana or Nevada or even California, you know, they... It's a tough town. People in this town have a very high standard of what they expect. And also, frankly, they're just spoiled as hell. You know, it takes a lot to impress a Nashville audience. I always say that sometimes it's one of the best places to play if you really want to hone your craft because there's a kind of practiced indifference to a lot of the clubs around here. Yeah. It's like, okay, oh, you're doing that? Okay, I've, I've heard that before. I've heard people do that better. So, I mean, you got to bring something unique. you got to do. You got to bring your A game. Um, and so, you know, and our way of, of creating a niche was just like, let's just kind of focus on this particular time period and this ethos that is um, not as common. See, we started out, we did a lot of old-time music, but um, as well as the, as the jug band stuff and the, hillbill, uh, the hillbilly music and blues and everything. And, but at the time, this was at the rise of uh, Old Crow Medicine Show was coming up around the same time and right. uh, Hackensaw Mountain Boys and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, those are great you know, old-time hillbilly bands. So over the years, we really kind of gravitated more toward Mississippi Delta, Memphis, um, more of the African-American-based uh, vernacular music of the of the pre-war era. Uh, and, of course, with uh, 
you know, Lisa being our uh, main lead singer, you know, she was uh, raised up in the black church in, uh, in North Florida. And she can bring that, um, that diva essence of the, of the 1920s, the Bessie Smith and, um, Trixie Smith and uh, Ma Rainey and and all of that, uh, even a little bit of Ella Fitzgerald. She brings in that jazz element, and nobody can touch her when it comes to that. So that's what we've kind of gravitated toward because we're kind of unique in this market for that. Well, <clears throat> it seems what little I heard live um, that you guys y'all sound a lot like. The recordings I've heard. Oh, you know, yeah. well, that's a great compliment because we we love the the spirit of those old records, man, and that's the, that's what it's all about. And I, that's one thing that really drew me into, you know, sitting down over there where I sat and just it's I was just eating it up, and right. I, I wish I'd been in there much sooner. Um, but either way, you know, you guys, y'all have a unique sound, especially for this town. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I, I can appreciate that and I enjoy that, you know, and I hope that, um, everyone who listens to this, uh, if they don't know who you guys are, they'll pick something up somewhere. I mean, yeah. you have, you have plenty of stuff out there. Yeah. And it's in a lot of it's, it's streaming. Um, thing is, is that we, we've, we've released four, um, albums over the years and, pretty much sold out of the physical copies of all of them um, with just a handful left of each one, which has been great. But now we're like, oh, do you get them reprinted? Are people going to buy a thousand CDs? You know, at this point, you know, does, you know, cars don't even have CD players in them anymore, you know? So um, it, that's a, that's a dilemma now. And you know, and the thing is, yeah. You, oh, well, what about vinyl? The kids love vinyl. You know how much it costs to produce a vinyl record? That holy cow! I I don't know how much it costs, a lot. but the main vinyl producer, um, yeah, I, I guess in town, yeah, yeah, is in my territory where I work. So oh right, have, yeah, off on the off Nolensville Road. Yeah, yeah, you know, back in United. Yeah, yeah, we uh, I have toured that structure right many many times at Ida hours yeah uh fire alarms various alarms and just seeing the production facility and that's just to produce the actual album right yeah that's not to you know i mean they got all these little rooms separate rooms you know and it just to me you look at that facility it's like this there is big money here oh yeah 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 and what's so great about them is that of course they have massive orders from you know um the the major labels they've got a new you know a uh, new record coming out casey musgraves or taylor swift or whatever and they're gonna need a gazillion copies but right. you know if you're a little independent like us i mean we did uh the hoodoo men after we put it out on cd i'm like let's try this out let's just do some vinyl um, and I, I had I did a vinyl through them, and it turned out great. It, it is it, it, it. I'm so glad we did it. Um, you know, we'll never make a dime on it because the right, right, the overhead, the, yeah, the overhead. It just. A, but I'm like, you know, that's one of those things. It's like when I die, 
there will be some vinyl records that outlive me with something that uh, songs I wrote and in, in, in records that we produce. So, you know, that's a it's kind of validation for having lived on this planet to have something to leave. We left some vinyl, man. That's a good thing. Well, you know, vinyl is uh, vinyl is the new you know, the new thing. Yeah. And that's what everybody's trying to get out on vinyl. But I think y'all sound, the way y'all do music, if you put that on vinyl and you got that little crack yeah, yeah. from the vinyl and you got that, you know, y'all sound, to me, I would rather hear it on vinyl yeah. than I would streaming or CD. Not to say I don't enjoy what I've heard. Oh, yeah. Just if you get that little crack in the back, because it's that warmth—that's what you want. Yeah, you want that humanity. You, yeah, you want you, you want that. Uh, you know, there's just there's something an emotional response from that needle bouncing between those grooves and coming the electricity through the through the speakers that is just not the same as an MP3 file. You know, there's just a I don't know. It may be very subtle and it may be even a, a completely um, placebo effect, but I just I just you just feel. You just feel the, the, the sound waves differently. Like you were saying about the sound waves, to me, you're, the music that I hear when I listen to you, mm -hmm. the genre I put that music in, I have heard those singers recorded on vinyl, and you hear the crack in the right. back. You hear, you hear the airiness of the studio or the room or, you know, wherever they actually did the recording. Right. You know, sometimes it sounds like the vocalist is way off the mic. Right. Maybe there's yeah. one mic in the room and everybody's playing to that. Or, you know, maybe it's the vocalist just, you know, they kind of move around. Right. So you get the, the back and forth. And right. like you said, you get the humanness in behind it. And I think y'all sound on vinyl would just, it would put me back. Right, right, same right, right. Mindset. Well, we've been talking about doing it. You know, it's so funny. We, in our first few years, you know, for after we were together a year, we put out a CD. And then the next year, we put out another CD. And then two or three years go by, and we put out our third CD. Um, and then another five or six years go by, and then we had a lineup change, and we put out our fourth CD, the only one that we have with our current singer, uh, Lisa. And then that's been 10 years. So our four records were in our first 10 years. Yeah. Um, so it's time, it's, we're way overdue for another one. Um, and and I've loved the places that we've recorded. We uh, Our third record was at uh, Jimbo Mathis' studio in Como, Mississippi. Jimbo Mathis is... Uh, he was the founder of the Squirrel Nut Zippers. They were part of that wave of uh, the hot jazz of the 1990s. They had that one big hit uh, called Hell. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the afterlife. Yeah. You know, um, and he, you know, he still runs that the, that band. But, you know, all of his um, other stuff, it's... It, I love, I just love his aesthetic because what we wanted was kind of a North Mississippi hill country version of... Um, of, of kind of a mid seventies Rolling Stones kind of thing, and he would be he was the perfect producer for that. Something like an Exile on Main Street for jug band music. And okay. so on that record, my God, we had uh, um, Charday Thomas and the uh, Rising Star Fife and Drum Band, part of that North Mississippi Hill Country tradition that of African American fife and drum that goes back to at least the seventeen hundreds. 
um, in this country. We had uh, Reverend John Wilkins on that on that record, who was the son of Robert Wilkins, one of the great uh, pre-war blues singers. Uh, and that was, I think, some of the first recordings he had made in over 40 years. And then, of course, he went on to, you know, relaunch his career. Um, unfortunately, he passed away of COVID um, in 2020. Um, but he, you know, was just, he was an incredible inspiration. Um, so we, it was, and also we had a, a Luther Dickinson from North Mississippi All-Stars yes. on that record doing a couple of tunes because he's an old friend of ours. Um, I, that, I'm really proud of that record. That's just, it was just such an event record, almost like a nitty gritty dirt brand, you know, circle being broken. In fact, that was kind of one of our models for that. It was just more like, let's bring all these interesting people together. Um, some of them, you know, deeply steeped in the um, Mississippi, you know, music tradition. And just let's get all together in a room and see what happens. What was the name of that record and how many tracks are on it? Well, Hill Country Hoodoo is the name of the record. And, oh, gosh, how many tracks? Uh, somewhere between 12 and 17. I don't know, closer to 16 or 17. Okay. And it's incredible variety of stuff on there. Um, okay. So yeah. that is a must get for someone who enjoys your style of music. Absolutely, or, or, yeah. Or wants to hear you and, you know, kind of kind of where you come from uh, album so yeah and there was there we there was some unique stuff on there like for instance uh you know kind of mixing the traditions up like for instance uh with i'm also primarily kind of known not only just as a musician but as a as a field researcher in primarily mississippi blues i've been going down to uh, the state of mississippi mostly in the delta for uh this will be 32 years this year okay and one of the things i did in the late 90s was seek out uh the last living um black railroad workers that were still um working when they were doing lining track songs so in other words these are the work chants that were the precursor to blues this is some of the oldest uh you know, uh, music forms in the, in the country. And I found about a dozen guys and then I got verses from, you know, three or four of them. So in other words, for railroad workers back in the day before they had, um, the machines to, to line track and by say lining track. So in other words, you, you they lay the track on a bed and then they might have a washout and then the track gets a, a like have a bend in it. So it would, they have to fix that so the train doesn't derail right. running at full speed. So what they used to have to do is they'd get these uh, lining track gangs, six, eight guys with these big, long metal poles, and they would have these songs, and they would time exactly when they all hit at the same time. And they might scooch the, the rail over like a quarter of an inch, and they might have to move it, you know, two feet. So it takes a little while for them to ease it back. And these songs were so important for um for that work so they could everybody could time the force of the hit at the exact same second so i, re I recorded these guys doing these songs and then i and i thought well let's 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 bring some of these back to life and then i suddenly got this inspiration of bringing the the north mississippi fife and drum music in and instead of uh, just doing it a cappella we had the fife and drum um, music in the background. So it's the first time that the railroad work chant mixing with the fife and drum, uh, both of which were precursors to the blues for the first time coming together. And so, you know, I was leading the, the track calling and everybody was singing and the fife and drum playing. And it was, uh, it, I mean, I just got chills 
from just how amazing that it was. That that really sounds interesting. Yeah. And one of the things I've enjoyed about this interview so far is the history of it. And I'm, you know, I love, I love history. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more I enjoy history and especially the history of music, yeah. uh, the history of, you know, the history of Nashville and what Nashville was before music yeah. and how music became so big and how, how Nashville actually became music city. And right. I've, I've read, I've had to go to the library and read original documents when I can find them. Right. Um, all kinds of, you know, I've dug deep into it and the history of music in general to me is interesting and especially the style of music you play you sing you write and the collabs you've done that to me is very unique because i'm a fan of history and i think anyone who listens to this um anyone who maybe is oh the the unbelievably amount the the variation of blues right you yep. you can look up the different styles of blues right. and everything if someone wanted to do a deep dive and see where these sounds came from where their favorite artist right who inspired them and who inspired the person that inspired right. them and just you know if someone wanted to go all the way back and see where music actually started right that's what I enjoy about your style of music is that it's it's a new version of the pure sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you mentioned blues and speci specifically, and it is largely the building block for everything that that came afterwards. So the blues, you know, first emerged. It's really it's it's a lot like um, human ingenuity in general. So there's like. When, when you really go back into into history, you'll find that uh, major innovations in in history, uh, inventions, will, will, will pop up around the globe around the same time. So as human society and culture evolves, the, lo the next logical thing for a new tool, um, you know, how to how to turn ore into metal. Well, you know, it's it's. Places that didn't have, you know, Europe and, and uh, South America and places like that figured out how to do that in, you know, similar timelines. Well, the music is, is also like that, even with blues. There's not a single source for that uh, of, of origin. It sort of popped up in Texas and Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia all around a similar time because everything that was before that was kind of pushing it in that direction. Um, and then from that, of course... You know, you had the blues really become popular in 1920, blues and jazz almost really kind of simultaneously. And that leads to, of course, jazz turns into swing and that turns into bebop and that turns into free jazz and blues, you know, eventually turns into jump blues. And, you know, Kansas City and Louis Jordan um, doing a really kind of a proto rock and roll thing, Big Joe Turner in Kansas City. And then it's just a short leap from, from that to the early rock and roll, Chuck Berry, you know, Bill Haley and the Collet, uh, and the Bill, Bill Haley and the uh, Comets, Comets, right? Yeah, 
uh, it's first day with a new mouth. Right. Um, you know, basically just, um, he was just a, a kind of a white hillbilly swing version of what Big Joe Turner was doing with the jump blues and Arthur Prysock and all those guys. And then, you know, um, Muddy Waters, of course, you know, taking that hardcore, you know, Delta blues, moving to Chicago and just doing the, just the traditional music on the electric guitar. Um, and all these homesick people up in Chicago, mostly from Mississippi that went up in the great migration, they're like, not only does this remind me of home, but there's this sort of like gritty urgency with the new way it's being recorded that speaks to my life living, you know, trying to hustle in Chicago. Right. And, and then, you know, Rolling Stones and all those guys hear this stuff and they're like, my God, this is the good stuff. And they were, you know, the Beatles and the Stones were just trying to be, you know, black blue blues and R and B musicians. And it just came out through this English filter. And then all the teenagers here were like, Holy crap. Um, that's something new. Um, well, I've, I've heard, uh, I've heard different bands do the Rolling Stones, the Beatles music, but they put their own, you know, we're, we're, we're in a club, we're in, I'm at a show, whatever, you know, and that everybody gets excited the, the band gets excited or that maybe it was even planned. It was right. probably planned. I'll just, I'm sure it was planned, but for me, it was exciting. It yeah. came out of the blue. They're like, Hey, uh, why don't we, why don't we do such and such song by yeah. the Beatles or Hey guys, we got this one song. We want to do this. And they jump into it. Maybe the younger crowd doesn't know it's a Beatles song right. or a Rolling Stone song, right? but that band, they put their own, twist on it right. because they got to kind of well they don't have to they do it their way right yeah and you take especially the rolling stones which they they have a unique sound to begin with well, sure you, i mean they're a bunch of poor english boys that were just trying to sound like uh you know black southerners um you know and what I, you know, and then of course it, it all just comes back and forth. That's the great thing about music is that it's, it's really a conversation, um, of it's, it, well, like food and music and so many other things are about, uh, borrowing or just outright theft of, of trying to become, uh, trying to do something that you find is interesting, you know, uh, like I, one of my great uh, examples, there's a great Tom Waits quote, um, who's one of my all-time favorite artists, who, you know, himself borrowed heavily from, you know, Kurt Vile and from Captain Beefheart and from Howlin' Wolf and from all these disparate sources to come out with this uniquely American music. He talks about um, uh, Howlin' Wolf in particular, who Sam Phillips regarded as his single greatest discovery way beyond Elvis. I mean, Elvis was great, but when in the end, Sam Phillips was like, I can die happy knowing that I got to record Howling Wolf before anybody else did. So what was Howling Wolf doing? He was coming up West Point, Mississippi doing, uh, you know, grew up steeped in the early blues, um, knew Charlie Patton and some of that really hard driving, great stuff from the Delta. But he also loved, Love, love, love Tommy Johnson. And Tommy Johnson um, was heavily influenced by Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers 
was basically a white yodeler doing blues that he heard from the, the railroad workers that he worked with. So, you know, so he's doing this yodeling thing. Uh, Tommy Johnson, a great uh, blues musician from central Mississippi, you know, I think was partly influenced by Jimmy Rogers. And he used to do this sort of like, um, you know, the um, this little yodel thing that he would do. You know, I asked for water and she gave me gasoline. And so Wolf was like, oh, man, I want some of that. I want to do that little yodel. But Wolf couldn't yodel, man. He was a 300-pound man. So it was like, you know, oh. So that howling wolf howl was him just trying to be Tommy Johnson. And as Tom Waits says, that attempt um, to do something that he couldn't do in his approximation of it, that failure becomes his art. So that became his signature style, is trying to do this other thing that he couldn't do. So he just did something different, and in many ways it was better. And it worked for it him. Worked. It worked for him, and that's, that's how all of this stuff evolves. That's like we talk about the, the OG sources for all this music. Well, that always just goes back to the first one who got to record. So, you know, like, you know, the, your Charlie Pattons and, and all of these guys, some of the earliest guys that got to record in the mid-20s, we don't know necessarily what the people that they were, quote, borrowing slash stealing from, um, you know, sounded like because we don't have records of that. You know, and that's the thing. People get so butthurt about, uh, you know, appropriation and originality. And, and it's like there's, it's never been a, a thing. It wasn't a priority for people who created all this music. You know, Pete Seeger was like, there's no such thing as uh, plagiarism in folk music. It's just everybody is constantly listening to everybody else, and it just seeps into what you're doing, and it comes out through you, comes out through the filter of your experience and what your voice sounds like and what you're able to do, um, and it's going to be unique. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, I don't, that's one of the things I don't worry about necessarily when we're playing these, this old music. I don't care if it sounds like the old records. I want it to have the spirit of those records. I want that feeling that I feel when I'm listening to this stuff to, and I see myself as more of a conduit um, across space and time to a modern day audience that can say, yeah, we're, we're a lot of fun, man. We're, we're a fun band, but uh, listen to us. Yeah, great. Also, then go get the old records, man. Listen to what we're inspired by. Um, you know, I'm honoring those guys. So <clears throat> who inspires you to, to do what you do, to get up on stage, to, to write, to, you know, to spend the time, to, to I guess... Uh, what am I trying to say to produce the art that you produce? Who, who inspires you and makes, you know, who do you, I'm not going to say who do you model yourself after right. because I, I, I don't think that's fair. Right. Right. To ask an artist, who are you like? No. In other words, if, if, if I was Helen Wolf, who am I trying to be? You know, who, yeah. who's my Tommy Johnson? Yeah, yeah, uh, but you're you're your own person, right? But somebody inspired you to pick up an instrument, to sit in front of a microphone, to grab a pen and paper when something hits you, and 
you know, say, this is what I'm going to do. Who inspired you to be you? Wow. How much time do you got? Um, I think we <laughs> got a few more minutes, okay. but even, even well, if we could, I, I can, I can get into specific people, but I would say by the time, um, well, okay. The, the person that probably in, uh, inspired me most to actually want to play music were some of the, you know, uh, some of the folkies, um, particularly, well, especially Neil Young. Um, I just, something about, I discovered Neil Young when I was in high school and really kind of first, a lot of it was the electric stuff, you know, the crazy horse stuff. And then I go kind of back and I started out, my first instrument was really the harmonica. So I was just kind of aping, um, a lot of Neil Young, uh, and I could mark him almost exactly, especially what they call first position harp, where you're playing the melody rather than the, off the draw notes, which is a more blues style and Bob Dylan, and I didn't play the guitar or anything, so I tried to find people to play with, and I was like, what the hell with that? I just need to get a guitar and learn enough chords to where I can accompany myself, because I saw myself primarily as a harmonica player. Uh, And then it just, of course, goes from there, and everything inspires me. But the main thing I would say uh, that inspires the band and what our mission is in all the bands that I play in is the recognition that music and its primary source is social music. It's not commercial music. And I think, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who was kind of bemoaning the fact that it's so impossible to make a good living as a, you know, just a working musician and how tough it is and all that. And I'm like, yeah, that is true. Um, but in, but you don't get down on yourself for that. You know, in other words, you don't say like, because I don't sell records like Taylor Swift and I'm a failure. No, that is a capitalist notion that has been placed on us to where all art is only valued in this country by its potential earning potential. If you think about the original purposes for music as a human enterprise, it was always for uh, either religious or ritualistic purposes or for community cohesion. And if you if you just focus on that, you won't lose you won't get you know too far in the weeds of of comparing yourself against the people who make the big bucks because you know the record industry survives on a one percent success rate there's a 99 percent failure rate in the music industry and it's those handful of guys that um and gals especially because it's a lot of them the women that are driving this that that makes so much money it allows the record labels to try out a whole bunch of other things because they don't know what's going to work. That's right. the one beautiful thing about it is um, I, I, that's what I fear with AI coming up is that they'll, you know, they'll get those formulas, even those money-making formulas will just be dialed in and dialed in. But there's always some teenager out there uh, playing an actual instrument or um, coming up with a beat that's going to hit a nerve for that generation that's always going to regenerate the next thing. Um, well, I, I agree with that a hundred percent because I've noticed that I go to these, I've gone to beer events in Nashville where it's strictly a, you know, it's, it's a tasting, um, you know, the brewers, they come down from various parts of the Southeast and uh, they have a big event, you know, and there's everybody's bringing their new beer out. Everybody's doing this. But in Nashville, you have a stage set up and they'll bring in two or three bands just kind of 
I would assume just to be kind of background right, right. for the event. Sure. But, you know, what, what I've noticed and what I love about these events and why I will go to every one of them is because the bands will get up and they will play. And what I've noticed is they may have three or four different bands that are completely different from each other. And they're bands that, you know, they got albums out there, they're recorded, they're possibly signed, but, you know, they'll get up there and they will play their hearts out. And as... The event goes on, you know, and the crowd starts getting a little beer in them, this and that. All of a sudden, towards the end of the event, you have more people standing up in front of the stage concerned about the musicians, the song, the art. And you can feel that energy from the stage. They're like, now I'm not just playing background. I'm playing for a crowd. And you feel the energy in the crowd. Yeah everybody there's a cohesiveness yeah there's a symbiotic relationship uh if if music is going to be truly great and all you got to do is just listen to some of the great live records you know at a james in nashville um you know um james brown and live at the apollo one of the greatest records in the world and there's several um bb king records um that what makes the records great is not only that they were all musical geniuses with just incredibly crackerjack bands that were just tight as could be but it's the electricity that's happening in the audience and that feedback loop that the audience is is just absolutely tingling with delight at what's happening on the stage which feeds back to that to the performer and even though man it would just be so amazing to have been there live um, and there's no way that you can fully get that on vinyl but my god some of those records some of those great live records are just uh, I just I, I just get you know, my hair stand up at the back of my neck just thinking about some of those phenomenal live records. And that's something that, that's why live music really will, I don't think it will ever die. That's the reason the I robots, the robots will not win everything, you know. Right, right. Well, I, I hope live music never dies because it is, it's, uh, I enjoy that more than I enjoy anything else to me you know and i have discovered some of my favorite artists by going um to a venue that i wanted and this happens to everybody i go to a venue because an artist i want to see is playing and that artist may have two bands that open up for them maybe i've heard of one of them maybe i haven't heard of either one of them and you know I go because for me, it's like, you know what? I bet, I bet I might really, really like this artist. And because if somebody said these two people or these two bands are going to open for this person, there's got to be a likeness. Right, right. And, uh, a guy that I really, really enjoy listening to, I had never heard of, never heard of. Uh-huh. And he opened for a uh, musician that, uh, that I wanted to see at the Ryman. Yeah. And Can you tell me who those were? Um, Kingfish Ingram. Oh! <laughs> 
Who, Kingfish was opening? He was opening for... <laughs> Oh, I wish you wouldn't ask me this. Gary Clark Jr. Oh, okay. Gary oh, yeah, Clark yeah, yeah. Jr. Gary Clark Jr. Huge fan. Uh, that was not a wise move on Gary Clark Jr.'s uh, part. Well, uh, I'm going to say somebody walked away. Yeah. Got in the car on the way home, yeah. plugged in the phone, and was listening to Kingfish yeah, all yeah. the way to the house. Yeah. And First time I saw Kingfish, he was 14 years old, playing at a little juke joint in Clarksdale, Mississippi, called Reds. And, uh, you know, we need to open another beer because I need to pour one out for yep. Red. Because yep. uh, You know what? Let's, Red, uh, Red, Red Padden was uh, the last of the great juke joint uh, um, uh, runners or whatever you would call it in Clarksdale. And he just, we just lost him uh, in this last month and he was, a, he was a dear friend. And that's the first time I saw Kingfish is when he was a teenager playing at Reds. And um, he is a prodigy and a product of the Clarksdale, um, you know, Delta, Mississippi Delta. And, uh, and I've, I've got to, I don't know him super well, but I've done some photo shoots with him. Um, just, Oh my God, what a beautiful human being he is. And, and just incredible talent. He he really was, man. And I'm going to say, and this is a pet peeve of mine, live music soundboards or sounds uh-huh. where it seems like the board is set for the main act. Yeah. And yeah, they just yeah, kind of yeah. yep. do the sound check there and then let it go. Right, yeah. And the first two acts got to kind of figure their way through it right, or whatever. Yeah, that, that's true. And I'm going to tell you, his vocals, as far as what I heard right. that night, were not on point. Right. But what I saw him doing, leaning into that yeah. mic, squeezing every ounce of everything He's he a real had, deal. He's a real deal. But his guitar yeah. was just, I mean, it was on point. It was out there. It was kind of overwhelming everything else. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. He's who, special. Who is this? He's special. And why is every hair on my body sticking straight up? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's special. All right. All right. So what you got here? Speaking of special, I hope this one is. Okay. This is a Czech lager from Yazoo Brewing here in Nashville. This is a 4.0 ABV beer that... um. I think we just need to jump into this. Yeah. This it's got a pretty label. I'm it I'm is, a it fan. It, it looks like uh, it probably is an approximation of Prague. I'm guessing in the background. Um, looks like there's like the oh I can see yeah there I think there's the it looks like there's the the River Charles and the and the bridge over the River Charles with a couple of the I've been to actually been to Prague. So I, I see that now. It. Yeah. There's okay. a, some of the saints there. You know, an interesting thing I found out when I was there, they have all these uh, saints and all these various characters on the bridge there over the River Charles, and some of them became sainted by the fact that they were martyred by being tossed into the River Charles. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. It's a, that's a pretty intense wow. place. It's like, like the New Orleans of Europe. Yeah, let's, uh, let's hope we don't get tossed in the river. <laughs> let's just go ahead and enjoy this beer. Okay. And, uh, so similar color. All right. Wow. Boy, just pouring this beer in the glass. The aromas. Ooh, yeah. 
Yeah, mine's a little clearer. Yeah. And again, me and the uh, the violent poor, I got a little more head on mine than you did, but this is a very clear, beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Straw. Yeah, you can uh, almost read a newspaper through it. Yeah, it's uh, fast rising bubbles. It yep. has a uh, a consistent head. Uh, it's kind of rocky. It's um, that's a real pretty beer. All right, all right. Let's dive do it? in. Cheers. Ooh. Hmm. Contrast. Yeah, it is. That's interesting. That has a um, initially the first flavor that hit me is going to be the um, the malt flavor, but it's kind of it's kind of muted and dialed mm-hmm. back a yep. little bit. It's not real sweet. No, and that's what I enjoy about this so far is that a lot of times the malt flavor in a beer is going to be a little a little sweeter, and it's gonna. It's going to be a contrast to the hops, but this kind of seems like it flows and works with the hops. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't have as many of the kind of the the sweetest uh, and the floral notes on the front end. It kind of it's more neutral to slightly, ever so slightly bitter, like a good European style. You know Pilsner, which is interesting too, because when I was we were driving on actually on a gig, between um, we had I was playing with some uh, some friends of mine in Berlin, and we were and then and that was a preliminary thing. We had some gigs there, and one of the the single biggest gig I've ever done in my entire life was um, playing with a buddy of mine who's from Mississippi but lives in Tokyo, Ramblin' Steve Gardner. Um, and he was opening up the uh, the blues festival in Vienna, Austria. Oh wow! Um, it's a, it was a month long festival, and we were the very first act on the very first day of the very first weekend. Wow! Um, and a lot of pressure there. They had we played in the in the in the symphony hall there, um, and it was standing room only. So this is like where the Viennese Symphony Orchestra plays, okay? And I've got a banjo ukulele and a kazoo and a harmonica rack and a resonator guitar and a saw, you know, and I'm like, you know, this is the most back alley humble instruments there possibly could be. And I'm sitting on the main stage at the Stadthalle in Vienna, Austria. You know, this is like the home of Mozart and Strauss. Yeah, <laughs> singing Memphis jug band tunes on a on a 1928 Mauna Loa banjo ukulele, right? Well, so, I, um, I know you play multiple instruments, but I believe probably the most unique. And for the listeners, I'm sure who may or may not even listen to this style of music, explain to me and the listeners how do you play a saw. It is, um, you, you basically defying the laws of nature and, and working what, with what, what kind of saw in particular do you play? Well, it's a real saw. I mean, it's like a, I mean, it's got the teeth on it and, and everything. The thing is, is that. Well, I mean, it's like a wood saw that you can buy in a hardware store. Originally, yeah, no, originally it is, but there's a certain, um, it has to have a certain um, kind of flexibility 
in other words. So if, it, if it's a, if the saw is extremely stiff, really hard to play it. Uh, you, you don't want one that's too short. You really want one that's, um, you know, I, I don't even know how, how long, how long it is. And not quite three feet, but you know, more than, more than 20 inches. Yeah. Uh, you want to get it on out there. And so that flexibility, so it's easier to bend it. So the saw to play the saw requires about four different actions to happen. You know, you put it between your legs and secure it. Uh, the first thing you do now, this has a handle on it. The one I use, it's kind of a cheater. It's not necessary, but you have to bend the saw into a slight S curve. So you're pushing down with your thumb and pulling up with your like index fingers, yeah, uh, middle finger. And you've got to get a slight S curve in it. That's how it's going to release the sound. Um, and if you've got the handle, you can kind of push it and pull at the same time without as much effort to get that S curve. Okay, there's your first thing. Um, then you got to get nervous leg syndrome going with the with the leg that's underneath the saw. So you've got, let's say for instance. I'm left-handed. I mean, I'm right-handed, so I'm going to play it. Um, I'm going to bounce my left leg, secure it against my right leg, get the S curve, so that gets that vibrato that makes it interesting and also makes it easier to find the notes because you can cheat a little bit. Now, here's the hardest part: finding the sweet spot. And the sweet spot is the place where um, basically you're hitting the octave. So the thing about a, the saw is like it's really like all music. It's mathematics. It's a it's a sine wave. So if you take your bow and you're and you're striking against the 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 flat side of the saw to to produce the sound, you have to hit it at the place. It's it's equivalent of say like the twelfth fret of a guitar, which is an octave. You know, so you're hitting an open E, put your finger on the twelfth fret, and it's the same note an octave higher. So that's the spot you've got to find. But as you're playing the notes, you're bending the saw, you know, um, uh, the more you push it down, the higher the register. The more you pull it back, the lower the register. And so it's like, it'd be like playing the guitar uh, where you're, all your notes, you're only hitting the 12th fret, but you're bending the neck. So that 12th fret keeps moving. So you've got a really narrow, about a one-inch place on the saw where that will produce the sound. So you have to know where that is. So as the more you go down, the more you've got to go up with the bow. The more you come down for a low note, the more you have to move down the saw. Right. Because if you don't hit it, you won't. You'll get like these weird overtones. So, and from that point on, it's just bending it up and down for the various notes. Um, but all this has to happen at the same time. So it takes a minute to get all of that technique down. So overall, how many, including the saw, how many instruments do you play? Well, or oh, <laughs> or at all. <laughs> uh, l let's go well and then go at all. Okay, I would say my probably my you know number one instrument was my very first one, which is harmonica. You know, that's the only one that I could play with confidence, just sitting in with just about anybody. Uh, if I even if I don't know the song, I can f I can f feel it out with a harmonica, and then after that, I would say it's probably a toss up between the ukulele, uh, specifically the banjo uke, um, and the guitar. I'm not much of a lead player. I'm more of a you know song form based you know uh, player, but those those primarily, uh, and then from there you know I, I'm serviceable on the mandolin you know four string banjo. 
um, saw, you know, saw's a lot like the harmonica. Um, I don't really need to even know the song. You just, you just kind of listen. You're just playing by ear anyway from that. Um, and then, and then from there, my gosh, I've just got a whole ton of other, other little things that I play, you know, you know, auto harps, not that, not that difficult. Um, let's see, I've various kinds of ukuleles, various kinds of guitar, slide guitar, finger picking guitar, um, you know, I'm, there's probably a whole, a whole bunch more I'm not even thinking of. You know, I've even played the mouth bow a little bit and the nose whistle. Okay. You know, all right. Most of the, and, but the whole thing is that it's 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 all part of that jugman aesthetic, which is uh, very unpretentious, um, and it's just basically the idea that you can take anything and and turn it into a, an instrument. Oh, I, I also can play the jug a little bit. Okay. Um, being in a jug band, it's right, right. You know, helpful to be able to actually play a jug. Right. Especially one that's got three X's on the side. That, right? that you know, the more that it's emptied, the 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 looser you are in playing it. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing about the jug is that people have a lot of misnomers about the jug. They think that it's it would be it's like a, a bottle where you're going, you're blowing across it. Yeah. You know, no, that's not the case. All the jug is is a resonator. So what you're doing is going, you're kind of making a spitting sound into the jug and you're just getting that sound to come back. So it just resonates what you're doing with your mouth. So that's the, the technique of the jug. Um, the jug, just like I said, it's just a big resonator. So everything we've seen in the cartoons growing up, right. everything we've seen in the movies, you know, where they're making, not necessarily making fun of a band, but yeah. the washboard, the jug, oh, sure. you know, the whole thing. They're just, at like you say, it looks like they're blowing across it. Well, and, and if, you look, if you look at the Darlings, you know, uh, which was – you know, most people's relationship with a quote jug band or hillbilly music is off of the Andy Griffith show, The Darlings, right? Which was, um, you know, uh, I think it was the Dillards actually, the real band. And you've got the 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 father in that who was the jug player, and they always showed him blowing across the top of the jug. And but that's not how you do it. You have to blow into it, down directly into the hole itself. And, you know, look, I, I remember I've gone um, auditioning jugs at antique malls where there might be a dozen of them in there and you're sitting there playing them all um, because some of them have a really, really kind of nasty tinny overtone and some of them have a really warm resonance. Yeah. And then you'll get the one that most recently had kerosene in it and you'll just like get stoned immediately. Right. That kerosene coming back in your mouth. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, so I'm you know, pass. yeah, jug. You know, uh, playing jug is a it's a serious business. So you know, d despite all of the the stereotypes. Okay. And it's uh, you know, and that's the thing about uh, working class music. You know, it's um, it, it all comes down to genius and poverty mixed together uh, creates new genres of music. And that's like almost all new music, no matter if it's urban or rural. It comes from poor people with uh, brilliant ideas, just making it up as they go. You know, all the you know the MCs in in the Bronx, you know, figuring out how to scratch records and and talk on the mic and you know the create create hip hop culture in the early '70s. You know, it's 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 never the the comfortable that come up with new genres of music. It's always the poor folks. Um, with a little time on their hands and some brilliant ideas of how to just do something different.
Okay. All right. Well, and on that note, yes, sir. Um, we will go ahead and uh, polish off these beers, and uh, hopefully, I will talk to you again here soon. All right. I've All really right. enjoyed this, Chris. This has been a lot of fun. Yes, I enjoyed the history and the learning and the 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 sharing of beers and the fact that you brought this uh collab in which was yeah pretty outstanding and uh, surprisingly good yeah all right so uh until next time this is uh chris Shrum signing off all right thank you thanks for listening to the two beers with band podcast we hope you enjoyed the show if you would like to donate to the show the link is in the description. 80% of this month's donation will go to the music charity listed on the 2BWB website, and 20% will go to the upkeep of the show, new equipment, payroll, and rent of the recording locations. Learn more about today's show at 2BWB on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and anywhere you enjoy the show.